guys, this is Person About Town, and today we're with Rick Jenkins. Rick Jenkins, I know words. <laughs> Today's been a long day. All right, guys, Rick Jenkins, Comedy Studio. We're on his back porch. Do you want to describe? Well, you, you've got an editor, right? So we're yeah. all set. Oh, okay. Oh, good. This is what you said. Let's, uh, let's meet someplace that you really like. And so many of the places I have, uh, the Comedy Studio is about making it so that other people feel comfortable coming there. Right. So I thought, oh, you know where I really like? It's my back porch. I've got an American flag. I've got my laptop. I have my dog. We won't tell anyone where it is. No, we've, no. <laughs> we've electrified the fences. To, you know, open micers will do anything for stage time. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. They would be like, no, I'm showing that I have gumption. I came to his house in the middle of the night. And I told him my jokes. Yes. Gumption, gumption, persistence. It's like everybody reads a, a business book and says, oh, if I bother him, that's the way to success. I feel like when I started out, it was like, well, there's no harm in asking. And you should, right. I mean, you got to make sure they hold you when you ask. So you have to ask several times. So. Right. Yeah. So can you tell well, me a little Thank bit? you so much for having me. Oh, this is great. I was trying to get you for a while. Um, and I'm really happy that you are on, uh, I'm calling it season two, but it's just the second grouping. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, so... So I'm not a second choice. No, not second okay. choice. yeah, all right. I wanted to actually have more episodes before I asked you to do it, so oh. it wasn't just like, hey, can you do this random thing with absolutely no context yeah. or any examples of how it would work? Oh, that's so nice. I mean, that's how I started the studio. Absolutely <laughs> no examples, no context of how it would work. Just say, so let, let's just do it, and then, then people start saying, hey, can I be part of that? Yeah, when did... Like, I know the, the 20 years, this is 20 years, this year. Yeah, 20 right. years, uh, mid-April of 2016. It's what, 20 years. What made you start it? Like, um, I had nothing else to do. I had started doing stand-up comedy back in 86. Mm -hmm. And for four or five years during the boom, I was able to, you know, squeak by with, you know, living in a, a an apartment and sometimes paying rent right. or... You know, staying here or there, and so it wasn't like I was making huge living at it, but I was getting by doing stand-up comedy. Right. And then uh, even that work started drying up, and uh, well, I got a job at the bookstore, and myself and a couple of the comedians were hanging out at the Hong Kong after our shows one night. Mm -hmm. Well, telling each other that we had shows. Really, we were just hanging out. Okay. And the Hong Kong said, uh, the manager said, hey, we just didn't tell anyone, but we remodeled upstairs. To be a dance club, so if you could go in and do comedy real quick and make a couple dollars, yeah, it'll look that much better when the owner finds out that we did this upstairs. Right. So we started doing a Sunday night show, mm -hmm. and the Sunday night show started doing really well. And after about a year, we went, well, let's do Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Right. So that's the anniversary. Friday, Saturday, Sunday is when we start calling it the Comedy Studio. Okay. So who were some of the other players involved at the beginning? The big player was Tom Brown. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a regular MC at Catch Rising Star. Never really got like the big TV credits, but he opened for Aretha Franklin. He did Shaka Khan. He was a black comedian who was clean in Boston. Okay. <laughs> so, so he he was that guy. Yeah. Yeah. There was um, the one. Yeah, yeah. There okay. was a, there was him, Jimmy Smith. There was a, a t real time in Boston comedy where there was maybe half dozen. There was not a lot of diversity in Boston comedy right. until you get to the alternative scene now. Yeah. But yeah, so he was uh, he was interested in this waitress at the Hong Kong. <laughs> That's so, convenient. So he tried to get all the comedians over there so that he could spend time with the with the waitress. And the waitress was uh, the niece of the brother of the owner of the Hong Kong. Okay. So that's why they asked Tom to get comedy and then Tom asked me to be part of it. Nice. So Tom and I started doing the Sunday night. Okay. 
And then when we expanded to Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we asked Jim DeCroto okay. to come in and be part of that. The, the long story of a, of a short story was basically there was nothing else to do. <laughs> and I was working the day job. I would finish working at the bookstore at 745. Right. Tom would set up the tables and chairs. His now wife would work the door. Uh -huh. And I'd come running from the club and go right up on stage, say, oh, yeah, we have a comedy club. People who haven't been to the coffee studio, it's a very distinct aesthetic there. It fits in with the Hong Kong as a restaurant, but I'm wondering, is that still the decor that was there when they remodeled oh, yeah. it 20 years ago? Okay. Yeah, yeah, they haven't changed uh, almost anything. <laughs> We've painted a couple times, mm -hmm. but yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. There used to be uh, drink rails in the middle of the room. Basically, uh, metal stanchions with wood on top of it, so you could put your drink down and be in on the dance floor. Got it. So we would have to take those down and set up the tables and put those up. So right. that's okay. the only real change. The dragons at the sound booth and the woodworking on the on the wall and everything is pretty much everything that's been there for 20 years. So over the course of 20 years, you incorporated magic. You are now mm -hmm. every night except for Monday. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but what are some of the highlights, some of the changes, some of the things that you were like, you never thought it would get to this level sort of thing? Really, the big one was about 12 years ago. Out of nowhere, the comedy connection was still around. Comedy was still big main rooms, opener, headliner, you know, TV cred, that sort of thing. And we got Best Comedy Club in Boston from the Improper Bostonian yes. in 1984. And I remember walking down to the Esplanade, picking up the Improper and just being blown away. Because <laughs> we were just a, a little room that... Yeah, maybe we'd get 12 people on a Friday to see Eugene Merman, Brendan Small, and Jen Kirkman. Right. Yeah, it was just a, a little gorilla room like you guys are now all doing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you find a bar and you do a show. Um, I find out later that that was basically because a couple of the big-time owners were fighting each other. And so one ah. of them said, hey, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll show him. We'll use our influence to get this little thing really? named Best Club just to piss off the other club. <laughs> but it, it's still... That was the first time that it was like, no one knows we're not a comedy club. If yeah. we act like we're a comedy club, people will believe us. That makes sense. Yeah. So now when I think of Boston comedy, and mm -hmm. it's certainly largely about when I came up, yeah. I think of the comedy When, when did you come up? Um, I started in 2013. 13, okay. And first time on stage was where? Um, first time on stage was, as far as open mic, Middle East, as far as show, uh, the gas on Fridays I, with Bob Yeah. 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 See, to me, it's even amazing that the gas is considered a show. Oh. Rob has done such an amazing job with it. Yeah. But when I was starting out, a comedy club was a building that was doing seven nights a week, two shows Friday, three Saturday. Oh, yeah. So the idea that people think of the comedy studio as a comedy club. Right. Like, we still have to put away the chairs. <laughs> Rob still has a band coming in afterwards. Yes. But he's just doing such great stuff with that. Yeah. So when you first went up, you had that feeling of, this is a show... I have to bring my best stuff. People are expecting a professional. I'm now a professional. <laughs> uh, no, I oh. still wouldn't call myself a professional. <laughs> uh, and I think people define it different ways. I think if you can sustain yourself on comedy, then you're like mm -hmm. a professional comedian. Yeah. I definitely feel amateur about it. But well, I, really but I, like think, it. I think that's really changed. I've been trying to put together a uh, Comedians Benevolent Association. Mm -hmm. And I go way back to the, there was a, professional comedians association there's always been these attempts to make some sort of union yeah. or some sort of something to get like just health care or you know help or right. 
you know, if a booker doesn't honor the contractors, you know, something for the comedians. And that's where it always falls down is because who is a professional? You have someone like yourself might be at a club seven days a week and not make any money on it. Right. You might have someone like yourself who goes out once a week and makes a hundred bucks. You may have someone who's never inside 128 or 495 Boston area making a living yes. playing Nashua and Portland and Springfield. Which one of you is a professional? You know, who, who really matters anymore? Or you may have half a million podcast listeners or a million Vine yeah. uh, views. Is that what makes you a comedian now? Yeah. Is that a professional? It's harder to see. There's not just, uh, not to say that there was always like one path. I've listened to a lot of interviews with very established comedians and they all seem to take a different route to it. But mm-hmm. it did seem like you started in this type of room, you went on to this type of room, and now there seems to be a lot of avenues into right. comedy. Yeah, there aren't the, there aren't the gatekeepers anymore, as Patton Oswalt said in that great uh, keynote speech with the Montreal Comedy Festival. Oh. And you know what? If the, the big club in your town doesn't like you, go to the next club. And if that club doesn't like you, make videos and put them online. And if they don't do anything. Write a script and send it off. It, there's nobody stopping you right. from being seen anymore. Yeah. Now it's more a question of how do you want to develop. My role at the comedy studio is almost to try to get you not seen. Okay. To, to try and give you a chance to develop so that when you are seen, you've really got something. And it's not just like, here's a new black woman with a good three minutes. Yeah. Now you get seen, maybe you get on Last Comic Standing or something, and then nobody hears from you in another year or so. Right. So it's, it's more, you have to be much more of a manager. You have to be much more in charge of, here's how I want my career to go. Right. Here's the choices I need to make to get where I want to go. Mm-hmm. Whereas for my generation, it was a little bit more of, hey, if the booker at the big club likes you, then he moves you from opener to middle, then you headline, then you get a TV audition, then you get on TV, right. then you get a sitcom. The path was a little bit clearer. So now there are places that they call alt rooms. Would you say, A, that Boston is kind of an alt scene? And then B, secondary question, would you say that there are rooms that are specifically alt and rooms that are specifically not alt? When alt started, we were really known as like one of the first three alt rooms. You had Luna and Largo, New York and L.A. And then mostly through Eugene Merman's influence, we became another alt room up here. So Mm -hmm. when Dimitri Martin came up or... When somebody was in the area, right. they would stop by the studio because Eugene would say, hey, there's this cool thing happening. Come play my show. That really moved us, which was always, I wouldn't say friction, but it was always a nice balance because I was such an 80s comic yeah. where I'm like, you know, you don't have notes and bring your energy. <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's 12 people in the room. For God's sakes, kill. Yeah. One great night I always remember, Eugene and Brendan Small were roommates at the time and they couldn't decide who had to do the dishes there were so many dishes and they were like that one's not mine that one's not mine right and so they brought a coleco tank commander game and hooked up to the tv and played tank commander to decide who had to wash the dishes and that was the show that people people bought tickets and they were just thrilled and they were talking and everything while they played tank commander right and my 1980s main room comedian head just exploded i'm like what are you doing right well everybody seemed to like it okay but it's not So that was when more the mainstream clubs were baby boomers. And that's where you start hearing a lot of airplane food and mortgage and the kids and and that sort of stuff. The alt rooms were David Cross, Louis C.K., Marin, all those guys, uh, Garofalo, 
who started out here in Boston mm -hmm. at Catch Rising Star. I was never hip enough to be a regular in that scene, okay. but I played there, we knew each other, we'd do shows together and all that. But they sort of pioneered that sort of thing. Okay. So all of a sudden, David Cross started playing rock clubs, and then Eugene sort of followed that mold. I think what's happened is now that distinction really doesn't exist much anymore. Okay. Pretty much every place does a showcase like the studio right. or the gas. You have Laugh Boston here in Boston, and you've got uh, the Funny Bone chain and the Improv chain, which are opener, middle, headliner. Yes. But now it's much more run by the Nerdist and the Meltdowns yes. and... Those things where if you bring up notes, it's not a big deal. Right. I think now the the Gen X has taken over for the baby boomers. Mm -hmm. And now you see the millennials starting to push the Gen Xers a little bit. Because now you hear everyone doing like, oh, the guy at the TSA screening must be gay the way he frisked me. Uh -huh. is like 12 years ago, it was like, oh, and the airplane food, why is it so small? <laughs> yeah. you, know, you, you know, you'll see four people with that premise mm -hmm. each week. So every generation has its, its has its thing. problems. Yeah, it has its hack things. Okay. The easier stuff to do. Right. But yeah, so I think that it's not a question of alt versus mainstream anymore because I think a lot of that original alt is now the baby boomers aren't going out anymore. Right. Now the Gen Xers are going to the comedy club saying, "I just want to see someone read from their notes and talk about you know jerking <laughs> off." You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's the standards. Yeah. So. I, I understand a little bit more of like how the comedy studio started. Now it seems to be changing. You're taking on another room at the Hyatt. Where do you see the studio going in like the next year, five years? Um, I really don't know. It's now doing so well. It's doing much better than I imagined. Saturday sells out almost a week ahead of time. Mm -hmm. We just sold out last night on a Wednesday. It's only 75 seats, but it's really, really gratifying. Yeah. Um, so the Hyatt show is a little bit of a concession to, to that sort of success. It's, the show finishes a little bit earlier, it's fewer acts, it's free parking, mm -hmm. it's, it's more mainstream-ish. Okay. It's more, okay, yeah, the people who have been coming to the comedy studio for the last 10, 20 years are coming in from the suburbs and don't want to have to look for parking and all that sort of stuff. So it's really just, uh, we'll expand when I'm forced to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like having just a small little club mm. uh, where, you know, anything could happen on any night. Okay. So actually, I don't know how you got into comedy in the first place. Like, I know based on one of your jokes that you're from Buffalo, but besides okay. that, I don't know anything about... That's like, a good way to learn about comedians, is to, to <laughs> analyze all their jokes. Yeah, uh, just, yeah. just memorize yeah. So them. Harriet Tubman looked what? Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I can draw her. And oh, okay, me, really? I've been sent every piece of Harriet Tubman <laughs> pornography. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I've been sent. There is a Harriet Tubman pornography. Really? Uh, I have been sent images of Harriet Tubman <laughs> costumes. People dressed up as Harriet Tubman. There's a sweatshirt that just says Tubman on it. Well, you know what? Think of it this way: they're dressing up as you. <laughs> you yeah, you've got yeah. huge fans now. <laughs> it, it feels so gratifying. Oh. I'm at that stage of my career. Yeah. Um, and just so people know, you have a joke about Harry Tubman. Yes. I'm not being incredibly <laughs> racist. Okay. Oh, that happened. Uh, it was at the studio Thanksgiving two years ago, and my sister was coming up to visit me. My mm -hmm. sister doesn't know my jokes or anything. Okay. And Scotty Lombardo comes up to me and he's like, Harry Tubman! <laughs> and she is like, who is this racist ass motherfucker who's just screaming yeah. this in your face? Yeah. When Scotty's look doesn't exactly <laughs> push that away. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scotty, you can see voting for Trump very easily. Yeah, I was uh, 
a kid in Buffalo and just fell in love with stand-up when I was around uh, 16, 17. Drinking age was 18. Nice. So that dovetailed nicely. <laughs> and uh, I figured, you know, I was going to be a, a writer, so I would, like, write off jokes and send them to comedians. So back then, you could just get the freelance writer's book and get addresses for people. So I wrote 12 jokes to Joan Rivers, and she circled one and sent me a check for $25. Nice. And, of course, I, I cashed it. Idiot. I should have at least made a photocopy. Yeah. I think I sold, like, two to Rivers, one at Dangerfield, a couple to comedy bulletins that would then sell them to uh, disc jockeys and stuff. So it was very, very different, very different era. But that was what I was really proud of. And then I wrote a play in college, a very Neil Simon sitcomish kind of play. But it got produced and did okay, so I figured I was on my way. And I had a little radio show for a half hour each day on the local NPR station of just clips of comedy records. So right. I was listening to comedy and reading comedy and doing everything 24-7. Yeah. And when I graduated college from Buffalo State, which is a well-known comedy school, of course. I just looked around and there were only two comedy clubs in Buffalo. And if you played one, you weren't allowed to play the other. So I told my parents I was going to go look for grad schools. And I went to Boston, New York, and Chicago. Mm -hmm. And Chicago at that time was all improv and sketch. Right. New York was, uh, I could just see, you made your living uh, on the road so that you could play the big clubs during the week. Yes. Or you had a day job and you were, and I realized I just didn't have the chutzpah to hustle the road work. Oh, yeah. And Boston was, I could see, hey, I had some friends who were already here that I knew from the Buffalo scene. Mm. And it was like, oh, you can make $100, $125 in a night doing Nashua or Springfield or whatever just as the middle. Yeah. So one Have night they I changed what they paid people? Oh yeah. <laughs> it was the same for about fifteen years, yeah. twenty years, and then like started a, going down. Yeah, I was like, I feel like that that sounds really nice yeah. as opposed to some of the places that I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. Well there were just so many rooms. Mm. But so what happened was I uh, realized all right, Boston would be the place that, you know, I, I could get in with a club work here or there and you know, piece together something because in Buffalo I was paying $83 a month rent. So I figured, oh, if I get one $125 oh, show a month, I can hang out at the club every other night. And so I was thinking about this and about you know how wonderful I am and how great I am and what a big star I'm going to be. And of course. I was drinking shots of uh, Grand Meunier with Heineken. I have never, what? You've never heard the story? Yeah. So I was, and uh, me and all the comedians, and Buffalo closing time is 4 in the morning. So it's about 3.30 in the morning, and I, I'm i 6 foot tall, 129 pounds, about 25 years old, and uh, I just reached a point where I feel uh, I need to explain to everyone how things are. Ah. And I stood up on the bar and said, you guys suck. I belong in Boston. I'm going to be a big star. I'm going to go to Boston. That's where I'm going to make all the money. I'm, just, I'm this great comedian. When I woke up, I was on a train in South Station. And they had carried me onto a train. And I was in the bathroom throwing up. So it was about 2 in the afternoon by the time we pulled into South Station. And they had pinned a note to my jacket that said, Not so fucking funny now. <laughs> so that's how I got to Boston. The, the story's more romantic when it's just, you know, oh, they just did that. But, yeah, you know, I had done some recon that we, that year right. and said, oh, I think, you know, yeah, I think maybe Boston's the place to go. Uh -huh. And they just they sped up the process. <laughs>
So, wait, did you go home and collect your things at least? Nope, no, I had an ex-girlfriend who was living at uh, Boylston and uh, Gloucester in Back Bay, and I stayed with her for three weeks, and I figured, I've got $100 on me, three weeks to stay with her. Yeah, yeah it might be tight towards the end of the month, but yeah, I, I can swing this. And so I called Rich Seisler, who's a great comedian of uh, Buffalo, who had moved to Boston about five years earlier, mm -hmm. and I told him the story, and he said, wait, you've got, wait, what? You're... Okay, uh, don't go anywhere. I'll call you back in five minutes. And I'm like, well, I'm at a payphone, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't call me back. He's like, all right, you call me back in, in 10 minutes. Yeah. Okay. And what he did was he called the owners of the Comedy Connection and said, I know it's your day off, right. but as a favor to me, go down and take a look at this kid. He's completely fucked, and he doesn't know it. <laughs> if he's any good at all, give him some work. You can have him open for me or whatever. Right. And then he called me back and said, oh, yeah, you got an audition. You know, you got a spot at the Comedy Connection tonight. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, good. good. This is how I figured it would happen. Yeah. You know, Hello, Boston, I'm here. Yeah. And I went down there and had a, a good set. And the owners were like, well, have your host here. You know, and here's some road work and everything. I'm like, okay, yeah, this is how it works. And then another comedian, Bob Batchelador, was moving out on his roommate. So I got that room. Uh, so a lot of stuff just, you know, yeah, fell yeah. into place. A lot of situations like that that I look back on my life now, like a re accident in your rearview mirror. Like, yeah. oh wow, that almost happened. Whew. Yeah, wow, that's pretty harsh of the people in Buffalo to do. Like, they paid for your train fare. Then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you you don't know Buffalo? Okay. Yeah, it was yeah. There's that much. Yeah, there, there's of Buffalo? yeah around three thirty in the morning after a couple of shots. You know what would be a good idea? Just yeah. This kid on a train. And yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Wow. He, he thinks he's a big deal. Great. So that's how I got to Boston. And then I saw my audition to play it again, Sam's, which was Barry Katz's room. Barry Katz has now been Dane Cook's producer and yes, manager. Yeah, and his name a few times. Yeah, very, very big heavyweight in the industry now. Mm -hmm. But back then he ran a little room called Play It Again, Sam's, mm -hmm. which was seven days a week, two Friday, three Saturday. And the hosts were Dennis Leary on Thursday, DJ Hazard on Friday, Lenny Clark. Uh, Bobcat Goldthwaite, but it yeah. was it was boom great room and I'm going to okay Yeah, all right now I have to go audition at another club and blow them away oh. I walked in and I saw DJ Hazard on stage and I said, you know, he can be bad. I'll, I'll be Robin <laughs> Okay, Rob, Robin's good. Yeah, he's in the I could be Robin. Yeah. yeah, so we became very good friends and Most people know comedy from the boom years mm -hmm. know me as like DJ sidekick ah. as much as anything else Okay and I started dating uh, Cindy Freeman, who was a really beautiful, smart, funny comedian that everyone was interested in, ah. and nobody was able to get near. And a week, two weeks within being in Boston, I started dating her. So generally, if you talk to a Marin or a CK, yeah, yeah. my big credit is dating Cindy Freeman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sick. in fact, when I did the live WTF with uh, Marin, that, yeah. that was the first thing he brought up. So what? What, what, what was with Cindy Freeman? How, how did that happen? You know, CK, me, everybody's trying to get with this girl, and there's guy from Buffalo shows up. It just ruins everything. Yeah, yeah so that's my big credit. Nice. Very nice. So, you know so many people, and they all come into the studio, like, when they're in town. Who's the guest that you're, like, happiest to see come and do it? And who's the person who, like, maybe a big name who you're like, I don't really want to do this? <laughs> Yeah. Well, Eugene Merman, like I said, he really gave the club its voice. Mm -hmm. He was out flyering. 
literally standing in the middle of Harvard Square yelling at people, don't make eye contact with me or you'll take one of my flyers. If you make eye contact with me, then you'll, you'll have to take a flyer. You, you'll feel guilty by not taking a flyer if you make eye contact. Don't look, don't look. Just an insane person. But he really gave the, the club and me that, that feeling of, you know, we're on to something. Uh, there's something happening here. And then Brendan Small got home movies uh, out, of the, out of the studio. And John Katz would come by anytime he was going on a late night TV show, mm -hmm. which was so much fun because he would give me the questions that like Letterman was going to ask so he could practice giving the answers. Wow. So I was able to play Letterman to John Katz and Conan nice. to John Katz. So there was a lot of stuff like that happening back then because mm -hmm. those people really, I, I don't want to overstate what the studio meant, but they really couldn't get spots elsewhere. Mm -hmm. The Comedy Connection, they were looking more you know, give us your best 20 minutes, and if it's about drinking and sex and drugs, that would be all the better. Okay. And that's not really what these guys were doing. Yeah. So Eugene could do okay at other places, mm -hmm. but the studio was really the only place that we were like, hey, we don't have any acts. We don't have much audience, <laughs> but we don't have any acts, so come on in yeah. and do stuff. And that's one of the things that always worries me now mm -hmm. is it's become so competitive and the audiences are so good that... Do people like you, your first year in, is the studio that difficult to get in that we're not grooming the next generation? Hmm. So that's something I'm always trying to, to find a balance with. Okay. Big names who, yeah, I, uh, there's people like, well, someone like Colin Yost. He's the um, anchor Weekend, on yeah, yeah. Weekend Update. Really great guy. He's been coming since he was uh, at the Harvard Lampoon. Mm -hmm. But now he's big enough that when he's in town, uh, Usually it's about three, four in the afternoon that his manager will call, right, and try to set up exactly what time Colin can come out. And there's been a couple times where, just like I can't tell you, it's got to be between this yeah. and that. Mm -hmm. But with this, and you're calling at the last minute, so I've got to move other people around and that. Right. And it's happened a couple times where I've just had to call Colin directly <laughs> and say, Hey, Colin, you know the studio. Here's the situation. He's like, Oh yeah, yeah, fine, fine, fine. Yeah. Okay. So. There's no no real problem with anybody who's big. Mm -hmm. You know, David Spade, we went through his agent, and then he gets there, and it's just the greatest person in the world. Mm -hmm. There's no real problem with the big names. It's just generally when they're that big, it will happen that management gets involved or their schedule gets involved. Got it. We had a, uh, Adam Ray, a really terrific young comic, uh, was doing a movie with Sandra Bullock, mm -hmm. and Sandra Bullock wanted to see him do stand-up at the studio. So we set that up, so he was doing the set at the studio, but we had to save six seats in the back and we were sold out, so we're turning away people while the seats are empty because Sandra's a little bit late. Yeah. And people want to take pictures with her, and she, her bodyguard is like, hey, we appreciate it, but really we can't yeah. do anything like that. And she was really nice to me and nice and everything, but you, I felt kind of like, oh, you know, that's a little standoffish. Oh, I don't yeah. want to take pictures with people and everything. And then about six months later, I get a phone call from someone who says, you know, hi, I don't know if you remember me. I went to school in Boston. I used to come by the studio. Oh, yeah, hi, how are you doing? And she says, I'm now working for People Magazine. Could we use you as an unnamed source saying that Sandra was sitting near somebody at the back of your club? What? Can we say that she came by herself? Can we say Sandra had her entourage? Basically just trying to get some sort of, oh, Sandra Bullock was seen with such and such. And uh, then you realize that that's why they have to be that careful. Uh, that if it's a guy saying, oh my God, look, I met Sandra Bullock. Yeah. Bang, in 15 seconds, 
the tabloids are saying, oh, Sandra Bullock on the rebound from her marriage. Yeah. Dating it. So the actual acts have never really been a problem, but sometimes when they're a little bit bigger, right. the mechanisms of being famous get in the way a little bit. Understood. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. I can't imagine just like everywhere you have to go, like constantly calculating the angles of like the people around you. That seems really yes. complicated. Well, we had, when uh, he was filming the um, Invention of Lying mm -hmm. with Ricky Gervais, um, yeah. Louis C.K. was dropping yeah. in every night for a week doing yeah. sets. And sometimes it was a little awkward because one night we had eight people in the audience. Right. And it's Mike Kaplan introducing Louis C.K. <laughs> so every night I would say, hey, Louis, why don't you bring your movie star friend? You know, bring Gervais here. You know, yeah. let's, you know, come on. And uh, Thursday night comes and there's eight people in the audience and Mike Kaplan is hosting. And uh, someone comes up to the sound booth to me and he says, uh, well, it's, it's eight o'clock. Should we start the show? Uh, you know, it's just six people and Affleck. I go like, what? <laughs> they're like, yep, yeah, it's Ben Affleck is with his wife over there. Like his wife Jennifer Garner. Yeah, yeah, Ben yeah, Affleck. Just hanging out. Yeah, so there's six people, you know, with there. I'm like, well, it's eight twelve. We're starting the show. Yeah. So I go over to start the show, and Louis comes upstairs. I go like, Louis, we're, we're we're about to start. When do you want to go on? Louis's like, oh wait a minute, let me see if any of my movie star friends are here. <laughs> like, yeah, Louis, your your movie star friend showed up. Yeah. So it was Mike Kaplan introduced. Eight people in the audience. One is Ben Affleck, one's Jennifer Garner. Louis does about 30 minutes of what is now his hilarious right. special. And uh, they watch like the next act or two and then excuse themselves. So they all leave, and it's Louis and Ben and Jen standing out front of the Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And a guy who's watching the show comes out and goes, Hey, I want to say, big fan. You know, great that you would come here and support such a small place and everything. And they're like, Oh, yeah, okay. And Louis just like, yeah, can we just get out of here? And yeah. Ben and Jen are like, yeah, yeah, okay. And the guy's like, I mean, it's great. You're like, you know, like, it's not like you're big stars, you know? It's like, just, you know, you come here and like no one notices and everything. You just come in and you hang out. And Ben's like, well, we're from Cambridge. You know, we, you know, we can do something. are like, yeah, but like, look, look at this. No one, no one even cares. It's like, you, you can, you, you can be totally anonymous. Like you're not, you know, nobody knows who you are. And uh, Ben like looks at Jen and they sort of like nod. And it's the most amazing thing. And Ben just sort of like tilted his chin up and put his shoulders out a little. And Jen just moved her ankle a little bit this way. And all of a sudden, like everybody said, oh my God, it's Ben Affleck and Jennifer Garner. That's so weird. It was almost like he just, like eye contact looked at her and said, do you, do you want to be movie stars for <laughs> a few minutes to yeah. be, yeah, to, you know, just to prove to this guy? Yeah. And she was like, oh, okay. And they signed pictures, you know, they, they took pictures and they signed autographs and stuff for like 15, 20 minutes. And, oh, no, no, we have to go. Yeah. But it was a really amazing thing of what fame is, like is for people like that, being a movie star is the job. Yeah. And sometimes like, hey, do you mind going to work for 10 minutes? <laughs> that seems nice. Um, so shifting gears completely, uh -huh. uh, what are some things like the club is doing well. It's not like in danger of closing. Or anything. What are some well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> go ahead, tell me more. Well, no, it's just we, we have a landlord. Right. So there's always that, you know, oh, we might want to remodel, or now you're bringing in more people, so we should get more at the bar. And it's, it's been 20 years of constant negotiation. Mm -hmm. So that's also why it's nice to have things like the Hyatt Regency Cambridge mm -hmm. and, and to be able to do other stuff. It's, it's nice to know now I'm at the point where 20 years... I can go, hey, yeah, I can do other stuff. You know, it makes the negotiating a, a little bit different. 
what are some things you'd like to see happen in the club, whether it be like developing talent in a particular way or organizing how it's run? Like, what are some things that you would like to see happen in the next like 10 years? Um, I'm really not sure. I don't know if you've heard, but the internet has become a big thing. I heard about it. Um, I'm always back and forth on it because, as I said, I like the idea of streaming shows. Right. We have some fans who are now handicapped, who re literally can't get to the show. So right. we're saying, hey, is there a way we can do that? Logistically, it's very difficult for us because we don't own the space. So we can't mount cameras and wire the room for sound and all that sort of stuff. But I also worry about once stuff is out there, then anybody can take it and it's gone forever. I, I do come from that 80s generation where all those cable access shows, Jerry Seinfeld at Rascals, Rascals has him sign a release for the right. cable access show and now they say, oh, we can, we're going to sell those DVDs. Yeah. So I'm always very, very protective. We give the comedians a copy of their own set mm -hmm. when they play the clubs. They can do whatever they want with it, mm -hmm. but we don't have them sign any releases or anything so that we can't do anything with it. So it's all archived there. We have every show, every second of every show, since January 1st, 2005. We set those up as DVD, so they're all archived back up in that closet. Oh. By the end of the month, we hope to have, go to thumb drives. Okay. So comedians can start getting digital. Yeah, so I'm always really worried about, hey, the, 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 the club is there for the comic to develop. Right. I, I get approached at least once a week by another website or another something mm -hmm. that says, hey, your comics would love to get exposure through our thing. It's like, well, yeah, but exposure doesn't pay and all the contracts are written so that it's like they own it forever. Right. Which is understandable. They have to protect themselves legally, but I don't want comics to say, uh, you know, that was a year ago yeah. and I don't do that bit anymore. Yeah, it's important for me that the comic knows that they're taking charge of their career. So it's more, for me, it's more a question of what we can do for the comic. We used to be really good with getting auditions having the Conan O'Brien people, having the Montreal Comedy Festival people come looking at talent. Mm -hmm. But those shows and those things really don't do that anymore. How does that work now? Now they look, uh, now Conan or um, Montreal will, they'll, they'll ask my advice, hey, who should we be looking at? Mm -hmm. Montreal will ask me for a DVD of, hey, give us like the top 10 people you think we should look at. Or just other shows will say, just give us the names and we'll look up their clips. Right. And that's why you guys have to be very careful about what you put out online. Right. Because Dane Cook used to put out something new every week, and he built a fan base. Mm -hmm. And then he was able to capitalize on having such a big fan base. Now, if you're putting out something every week, some of it's going to suck. Yeah. And then you get somebody who says, oh, I've heard about this Kenise Mobley. Let me Google her. Oh, that clip sucks. Yeah. So, again, you have to be, you, you're also your marketing professional as well as your talent coordinator and your writer and your director. So what are some other things, like some other, I guess, pitfalls that you see? Because you do see like a lot of young comedians coming in, trying to get stage time, trying mm -hmm. to really dip their toe into comedy. What are some things that you're like, oh my God, that's going to mess you up for a long time? <laughs> <laughs> it's all a gray area. Mm -hmm. On the one extreme, you've got to get noticed and you, you, know, you have to put your product out there. On the other hand, you have to do the research and development to create your product. You know, if you've got something really, really terrific and are ready to put it out. Mm -hmm. The problem is we're usually one end or the other. 
you know, or somewhere in between of like, hey, I've been doing it a year. I think I'm great now. Now take a look at me. Well, it might be too soon. Hmm. Or, um, you know, hey, oh, don't look at me. I've been, I do new stuff every night. You know, so when you market yourself and when you develop yourself, that's, that's the sweet spot. That's, that's the difficult part. So I see a lot of comics move before they're ready. Mm-hmm. But I also see a lot of comics stay longer than they should. Okay. Would you say is that comic by comic or is that more like a particular time period or milestone that someone hits and then they should move? Um, it's, it's pretty much comic by comic, but I would say a good goal would be you want to have that tight five to seven minutes that you could do on Conan. You want to have at least an idea of a solid 30 minutes you could do if you got hired for a college or something. Right. And just sort of have that that skill to be able to turn it on on an audition, to just be undeniable. Okay. The point that people are looking at things. Those are the two big things that it's the, the coin of the realm. Mm. You know, you want to be able to, to hit that um, and then maybe that five-minute video can go viral. Or I mean, there's some great, great managers and great producers. Um, J.P. Buck at Conan is just the gold standard because mm. he watches everything and he gives very specific notes and he's really knows about comedy. Dave Becky, um, my captain's manager, just, he's managed almost everybody okay. in comedy. He really knows what he's talking about and he's looking for a unique voice and something that's different. So the, there, there are people out there that once you know, hey, I can walk in whether it's the Kowloon, the studio, or the gas, and I know this five minutes is going to do well. Yeah. And again, it also has to be in your own voice. Right. So yeah, we can all tailor our stuff and go like, oh, at the Kowloon, I'm going to do a little bit more North Shore type stuff. At right. the studio, I'm going to do more old stuff. It's, you can do that, but if you've got that five minutes that they'll work anywhere and 30 minutes that you can play a Catholic college and you can play a frat house, you know, okay, now they can sell you and make you a little bit of money while they try and put together the, the bigger package. So what would you say are some of the steps outside of, like, working on your jokes, getting up frequently? What are some of the steps that you think a lot of people aren't making? Or maybe they are, I just don't know them. Always be working on something. Mm-hmm. I mean, for some of it, it's learn to juggle. Uh, <laughs> write a spec script. Steve Martin said, anything you learn, you will eventually end up using in show business. So, yeah, write some sketches. Take an acting class. Do a, uh, do a play. Do... Anything that's going to further you because you're an entertainer. And that might mean that if you hit the big time, you may have to do a dance number with Stephen Colbert. You know? I I feel very lucky that I would be able to do that. Yeah, you see exactly. Well, and it's not just luck. You put the work into learning how to dance. (laughs) Yeah, that's why it's, uh, I I think that's a big thing. We tend to think if I just work on my jokes, Mm -hmm. if I just write in my notebook long enough, if I get on for five minutes, two, three times a week, then somebody's going to say, hey, you're good. Why don't you dance with Stephen Colbert? <laughs> and we'll go, oh, okay. Uh, now, yeah. now, I guess now I'm a dancer. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody in show business, all the industry in show business are salespeople. So they're looking for something they can sell. You as the content provider to have something that they can say, hey, this guy, he can sing, he can dance, he can act just like Fallon. Hey, CBS, you want the next Fallon? It's this guy. They can sell that. Got it. I have a friend who... Uh, wrote for uh, the Cosby show and now he has his own he runs his own TV show it's a leverage and now it's 
he's doing the librarians. We were writing partners. I'm like, I can write as good as him. Yeah. He was like, yeah, but nobody's going to ask you unless there was a script yeah. that you do. We could all do, I'm sure I could do a pretty good five minutes on Conan, but I don't have a five-minute tape to show Conan. Right. It's about doing it, and then other people can sell it. An agent or manager isn't going to make you. You have to make you, and then they can sell you. Yes. Because they get 10 or 15% of you. <laughs> so it has to be pretty clear that ten, 10 or 15% of you is going to be a significant amount of money for right. them to have that be their get-up-at-9-in-the-morning-and-go-to-work job. Mm. What is the question new comedians ask you most besides, can I get up? At the studio. <laughs> well, luckily now I have, uh, as of this year, uh, Andrea is doing the bookings and Rick Canavan is doing the bookings, so I'm, I'm trying to step out of that a little bit. Um, I don't know. Mostly, I think most people are, you're in that same thing of how do I get that break? And what you'll hear from every agent, producer, and club owner is get good enough, you'll get that break. Because again, I need really good acts or my audience isn't coming back. So I need good acts more than good acts need me. Right. The, the breaks will come when you're that undeniable. Mm. Yeah. So you've lived in Boston for 20 years. Can you describe a little bit more of the specific Well, I've lived in Boston 30. 30 years. But I've done the studio for 20, yeah. Okay, so for the 10 years in between getting here and creating the studio, you were just like out doing comedy. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Catch a Rising Star. You mentioned, or two Catch a Rising Star? No, there was... Um, Catch Rising Star was a chain, so it was okay. the New York one that most people know about, Richard Belzer and those guys. Uh, 1985, mm -hmm. Catch Rising Star opened a Boston club in uh, Harvard Square. Okay. Where was that? That was over by, I was just going to say by the Radio Shack, but Radio Shack just closed. Yeah, I was like, I don't know where the Radio Shack is. Uh, it's on JFK Street. Okay. Yeah, over there just next to the garage, you yeah. go downstairs. Okay. So what happened, you had Stitches, was uh, seven nights a week. Stitches, The Comedy Connection, Knicks. Uh, you had all these, played against Sam's, you had all these comedy clubs. You had like five full-time clubs right. within a mile. There was two on the same block. <laughs> and they were all the local acts. They were Sweeney, Gavin, Rogerson, yes. Tony B, DJ Hazard. Boston had their big stars. And those guys would just go like club to club to club to club. So when Catch a Rising Star opened franchise in Harvard Square, those guys weren't really part of that because Catch Rising Star was bringing in Seinfeld as the headliner Got and it. bringing in Brett Butler to do a week as the headliner. So they were bringing in out-of-town acts. So a lot of the big acts in Boston weren't really interested. That's where you get all of a sudden Louis, Marin, Garofalo, all these new cross, all these new young acts mm. were hanging out there because they could get on. And they had a booker who was uh, Robin Horton, who was very dogmatic about being original mm. and crazy in many, many ways, but really pushed everyone to see comedy as an artistic form. Right. And so those guys started getting stage time and getting the opportunity to do different things. And then after about four years or so, when they got really that good and Catch Rising Star closed, they moved to New York or okay. Los Angeles or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden you had this gap where there wasn't anything happening. Meanwhile, across the river, you had Nick's comedy stuff start saying, hey, wait a minute, why are we paying these guys so much? We make all our money on the bar. We're going to stop paying the comics so much, and we'll just get the, the open micers in the back and let them do five shows a week 
you know, two Saturdays and just do like a crappy open mic show and we'll make all our money at the bar. Where they got lucky was that those crappy open micers in the back were Dane Cook, Bill Burr, Patrice O'Neill, <laughs> Nick DiPaolo, Gary Goldman. Oh, yeah. So they got all that stage time. So they got up and then moved on, moved forward. So by the time the studio comes on, Catch Rising Star is gone. We're now filling that slot mm-hmm. where the Eugene Mermans and the new guys who are looking for Jen Kirkman, who are looking for stage time. Right. The studio becomes a place that they can get stage time because the other clubs have them shut out. So there's been a comics are always going to pop up like golfers in the hole yeah. of like, oh, if there's stage time here, I'll go there. <laughs> yeah. So we had Grandma's Basement. We have the gas. We have a lot of really cool, interesting places mm-hmm. where the new interesting talent pops up. So right now we are on your back porch. Um, so can you describe kind of what we're looking at right now? Of course, leaving out the details that would show where you live. <laughs> uh, well, my wife was very smart. When she was uh, like 25, she had to find an apartment because they were getting kicked off hers. And uh, she wrote a really nice letter and put together a mortgage and bought this place in Cambridgeport, which back then was a little seedy. <laughs> and now she owns this, and then they built a back porch onto the house, so we're right along a, a, an unnamed main street, right. and there's uh, beautiful trees in back, and I sit on the porch and work with my laptop and have the dog at my feet, and that's the office. So I do all the scheduling and the programs and the emails and all that sort of stuff from back here. Mm-hmm. So what year did you move into Cambridgeport? I lived in Somerville, Winter Hill for about 16 years, and when I met my wife, I moved in about five years ago. Okay. So it was about 2011 that uh, I moved in here with her. So this is super peaceful. You guys can probably hear the birds, but is there any other part of Boston that you would ever consider living in? Oh, well, I, I, I make the best of whatever situation I got. Okay. Yeah, when, when somebody said, oh, we could do comedy in the third floor of a Chinese restaurant, I didn't think, oh, that's perfect. <laughs> I thought, oh, yeah, I could handle that. All right. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember when Boston, when South Boston was that nasty and segregated, yeah. and now it's so gentrified. It doesn't seem like there's a single neighborhood inside 495 that's not the new up-and-coming hipster neighborhood. Right. Medford is the new Somerville. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so I think pretty much anywhere... Anywhere you can afford to be right. inside 495 is worth taking a shot and doing your best with it. And I know you have the studio, but taking that aside, would you ever move out of Boston? I don't know. I mean, I've, I'm old. You know, I, <laughs> I, I'm 55. So now we're sort of seeing end games. I've often wondered that if I was end offered. Games? Well, I'm often wondered, you know, if I've got a, if I'm offered a job on a TV show or something or other like that, but uh, it's been 30 years and no one's offered anything, so <laughs> I think we're, we're pretty well pretty well settled. All right. Endgame just was like a really, it's a very serious way of Oh, I, 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 you know, I have no illusions. I think that, you know, the obituary's already been written. The obituary, really? Oh, the, yeah, it's like, you know, Rick Jenkins, uh, originally from Buffalo, <laughs> ran a comedy club that was, uh, meant a lot to a bunch of people, and, uh, you know, that, that went well. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, yeah. the obituary just ends that way. Yeah, well. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. That, that way, that, yeah, that, Wait, do that people write well. their own obituaries, or do other people write them after? Like, I think other people are supposed to, uh-huh. but now with Wikipedia, I think most people write out their own thing. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, does it say I was wonderful? Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's right. <laughs> no, it's 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 a really nice role that I really like. I'm such a comedy nerd and such mm. a comedy fan 
that to me when Mike Kaplan comes back or Eugene comes back or Aaron Judge comes back or when I see you get your picture in the in a, in a magazine <laughs> that's what I really I really enjoy I like I love hosting the shows because I get to be act like a comedian and tell some jokes but really I'm there to be in between here are the comedians here's the audience I'm inviting the audience over to my home to meet these friends and I hope they just have a good time hanging out with me a little bit in my favorite place. You say that at the beginning of the show, and I've always really liked that. Yeah. Like, this is like a party, and I'm inviting my friends that you guys get to see. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. Thank you. Are there any final thoughts you want everyone? I mean, you've been on major podcasts, so are there any final thoughts that you may not have given the other podcasts that you'd like to give now? <laughs> I think Kenise Mobley is a, a huge talent. <laughs> That's my line is always, uh, you know, my real feeling is people say, oh, so much, so much talent came out of the studio and all that. Like I said, I saw Patrice come out. I saw Louis come out. I saw all these, this great talent come out. The club has very, very little to do with it. I'm very proud and very happy that we have a nice little place for you to work. But it's really all about how much work you're going to do. Yeah. I say I have the keys to the gym. Whoever shows up and lifts the most weights is going to be the strongest. So it's really cool to open up the gym every day and see who's there working. But it's really up to you to do the work. Well, that sounds, that's a great way to wrap it up. Okay. Uh, guys, this has been Person About Town. Thank you so much for joining.